Have you ever heard the expression, he has made quite an entrance? Well, when Paul and Silas initially went to Thessalonica, they made quite an entrance to the extent that four times as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, you know, you know, you know, you know. May I ask you, what kind of entrance do you make to those that you want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? What would they know about you? A pastor was approached by some members of his congregation about trouble in the church. Airing their grievances, they made multiple charges against another group. After listening carefully, the pastor responded, You are right. You are absolutely right. The next evening, the opposing group shows up at the pastor's home. They went through their list of complaints. And when they had finished, the pastor said, You're right. You're absolutely right. The pastor's wife had been in the kitchen and had overheard that conversation in the previous nights. And she rushed out after the one group had left and said, you are about the most wishy-washy individual I have ever met. To that, he said, you're right. You're absolutely right. Paul, unlike the wishy-washy pastor, modeled a life of integrity to the Thessalonians. He and his like-minded associates could appeal to the Thessalonian saints to imitate them and live for Jesus. Two questions I'd like to toss to you before I read 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Question number one, what does the Lord expect from those who share the gospel? We're all called to be disciple makers, to preach the gospel to every creature. None of us are exempt. What does the Lord expect from you and me? And number two, how should you act when sharing the gospel? First, Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, 
our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the entrance of Paul and Silas and later Timothy to the saints of Thessalonica. I thank you how they live their lives in such a way that they could appeal to God and even the Thessalonians that they had lived righteously and both could testify. Father, today I pray that you would minister to our hearts Help us to consider the kind of entrance we have to others, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, for you yourselves know, brethren, that are coming to you is not in vain. Uh, Pick up the word for with me, the conjunction. It connects chapters 2 and 3, what we're about to study, and expands upon Paul and Silas's entrance to Thessalonica. Now, in verse 9 of chapter 1, we had the word entrance. And now Paul picks up on that term. It's translated now coming in chapter 2 and builds upon the mannerisms of Paul, Silas, and Timothy before those individuals. You yourselves know. That's an interesting statement, is it not? Uh, Yourselves makes it emphatic. But when you see the two words, you know, they occur four times here in chapter 2. Here in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, and then in verse 11. Paul is going to make an appeal to the knowledge of the Thessalonians, something that they already knew. Now, the word know is not from gnosko, an experiential knowledge. It's sort of a knowledge you grow into. This is the word oida, which means a complete knowledge. These individuals had a complete knowledge concerning Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They knew. May I say as a pastor, when you're working with the saints, one of the things I do often is make an appeal to what the congregation already knows or the individuals within the congregation. They know. When they have been instructed in truth, they know the character of both the minister and what was communicated to them. They know. And that's the appeal that Paul makes. And uh, observe here, he's writing to the brethren. Literally those from the same womb. (laughs) I love it. When you see the term here, it is speaking of not those that are blood relatives per se, but those who are from the same womb through the blood of Jesus Christ. Nineteen times Paul reminds this congregation that they are a family, eternally related because of the relationship that they all had through Jesus 
Christ. It's a wonderful thing to be in the family of God. And then Paul says that our coming to you was not in vain. The word coming means unto a road. The way we had our entrance. Paul and Silas had a divine purpose when they had gone to Thessalonica. And that's why it was not in vain. The term vain here, the adjective, has the idea of empty or hollow. We could actually say fruitless. When God dispatches you to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's always purpose in that. And it is not in vain. And then Paul gives a contrast here beginning in verse 2. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi. Let me take you back. Paul and Silas were in Philippi. And they were treated poorly. Their wounds were probably still fresh as they traveled 100 miles to Thessalonica. To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had endured much because he says here, we had suffered. It means to be afflicted by something external, outside. They were physically suffering. They were beaten with rods as we're going to see in a moment. Paul adds, and were spitefully treated at Philippi. They were shamed. They were mistreated. The first time the term here, spitefully treated, occurs, uh, we find it in the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 22, in verse 6, a parable. And the rest seized his servants, treated them how? Spitefully, and killed them. Let's uh, go back to Acts chapter 16 to review what Paul and Silas had endured for the cause of Christ. And then we will see how they continued to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 16, down in verse 16. 16, 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. There's a demon within giving her the ability to predict certain events in the future and it made her masters lots of money. This girl followed Paul and us. Notice the us here. That would include Dr. Luke. And cried out, the imperfect tense, kept on crying out. As Paul and Silas continued to minister there with Luke, this girl followed them around and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Paul gets greatly annoyed at this as we learn in verse 18. See, he did not want the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed by a girl that is possessed by a demon. Why? He did not desire 
that the individuals in that community associate Paul with this woman. So he speaks and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. And, and by the way, why not Luke? Well, Luke is a Gentile. And there was a persecution that was going on against the Jews at this time. So they seem to single out those that are Jewish. So they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Notice they're concocting a story. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothing and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. They're probably in the inner prison there, perhaps even in a dungeon. So they've been beaten, and now they are in chains. They are in stocks. Having received the charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns about God. Now what it says. They were singing hymns to God. They knew God was there with them. And by the way, the prisoners are overhearing this. Verse 26. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And through this, the Apostle Paul leads the jailer to Christ. He simply says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But what I want you to consider here, Paul and Silas boldly Proclaim Jesus Christ. They are imprisoned. They are beaten. They are put in the stocks. After that, they travel 100 miles. And back here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 2, Paul says, As you know, once again, he's making an appeal to their former knowledge. He says, We were bold. In our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. We were bold. Literally here we had all speech or a freedom of speech. Consider this. When Paul began the gospel ministry in Acts chapter 9. The disciples did not want to associate with him. They remembered him as Saul. They didn't want to be caught in his trap or what they perceived to be a trap. So they avoided him. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, comes, embraces Paul. But as Barnabas brings Paul to the other Christians, he notes in Acts 9, 27, and then in verse 29, about the boldness of Paul's preaching. Think of it. Some years later, Paul 
was afflicted much. Even at Philippi, he's beaten with rods, put in the stocks, and then travels a hundred miles. How bold would you be? Can you really imagine going then to Thessalonica after suffering these things and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think it would have been very easy to kind of find a little group of people and go, i got a message I want to share to you. It's, it's, it's about Jesus. Please don't throw anything at me. <laughs> no, that's not the way Paul and Silas operated. They were not given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And they boldly proclaimed, and I love it here, it's the gospel of God. Gospel is prevalent in First Thessalonians. One five two 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 four two eight two nine three two. We see the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the good news, and it's the message that Paul preached without apology. And it says here, in much conflict, and polo agony. Give me an English equivalent. Yeah, agony, <laughs> right? This term was used in the Greek games of running, boxing, and wrestling. Sometimes the agony or the conflict was outer, something external. As in Philippians 1.30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. Paul had endured much and that was what he was telling the Philippian saints physically. But then there's an inner conflict as well at times. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, to a group of saints that Paul had not seen face to face. He says, the great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea who have not seen my face. Paul was a battler. We need to be a battler. Whether the conflict is external to the gospel, you know, we're getting physical punishment or whether it's internal, we're a little sheepish because of what we have endured for the cause of Christ. Twice the root is used in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith, says Paul. And then upon his deathbed in prison, 2 Timothy 4.7, he could say, I have fought the good fight. Amazing. Amazing. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had endured. And as you come now down to chapter 2, in verse 3, he gives what they were not. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. The word excitation is is intriguing here. It literally means to come alongside of someone. To give him or her aid, encouragement. But the term is always used as an appeal to the will. Paul and Silas and Timothy did not manipulate people. They did not play upon their emotions. They did not flatter them. They were sincere, godly servants, but who make an appeal 
to the will. See, here's the reality, even as you're addressing fellow saints, other Christians, you need to appeal to their will that they would determine to get into Christian life and to stay in the Christian life regardless. Let a man deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, says Jesus. You need to get to that place, child of God, if you haven't already done it. See, Paul got saved and he says very simply, Lord, what do you want me to do? That was it. He was all in. <laughs> For you and me, sometimes it doesn't happen so quickly. But Paul writes in Romans 12, I beseech you, I beg you, the Roman saints, that they might present their bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, and then he goes on to say in Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed, squeezed into the mold of this world. But be, and here's what's key, transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to, child of God, take the word of God each and every day and fill your minds with it. It's a discipline. You might be going through a great season in life. Everything is smooth. All the more reason to study God's word. Memorize it. Meditate. Act upon it. Because there will come seasons that are difficult. You need to go back to what I call stored application. Draw upon all that is within you to lead that victorious life. Paul's exhortation, number one, did not come from error. He wasn't on the wrong path. Nor from uncleanness, which is the idea of filth or uncleanness physically. That term uncleanness is used by Jesus of whitewashed tombs. Inwardly are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Matthew 23, 27. It's a term that also occurs in the works of the flesh. Child of God, which nature are you feeding? Garbage in, garbage out, you get the works of the flesh. You take God's word. It saturates your being. You lead a godly life. That's a result of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident. In the Greek sentence, evident appears first. Why? It's so clear. Here are the works of the flesh. You're capable of it and so am I. Adultery, fornication. Number three, uncleanness, lewdness. Paul says, we weren't unclean among you. We didn't come to manipulate you. We came to save your souls. We didn't want your bodies. Nor was it in deceit. Paul Silas did not come to manipulate the people. To bait a hook in order to entrap them. Notice the contrast in verse 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. They have been approved. That term occurs twice in the verse. Here it's in the perfect tense. They have been approved in the past. 
with the results continuing. In other words, they were found tried and true. What were they approved to be entrusted with the gospel? And Paul says, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men. Listen to Galatians 1.10 concerning pleasing men. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still, and see the word still tells us that there was a time prior to Paul's salvation, most likely, that he had pleased men. For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. God was the one that Paul and Silas and Timothy wanted to please. For he must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 5, for neither at any time did we use flattering words. Someone who praises you says something that is true about you in order to build you up. Someone who flatters you gives you a compromise, but because they want something from you. Paul says we didn't use flattering words, and notice the expression, as you know. Remember this. Remember this. In our Christian lives, we struggle because we tend to forget exactly what God has done for us in the past. Paul says, you know this. See, nor do they have a cloak for covetousness. The word cloak is to shine forth. Means to cover the shine. Paul, Silas, and Timothy did not come and masked who they were. Because they wanted something. That's the idea of covetousness. To want more. And by the way, Paul picks up this term in Colossians 3, 5 and says, And covetousness, which is idolatry. In the past, Paul keeps appealing to the Thessalonian saints. He says, you know this, you know this, you know this. Now he says, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men. This is verse 6. Some people are all about themselves. Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Jesus called them all hypocrites. What they did was to be seen by men. They had their reward. Paul says, we did not seek glory from men, either from you or from others. As we have walked through this section of Scripture, let me give you point number one. Proclaim the gospel with integrity, despite opposition. That's chapter 2, verses 1 through 6a. Proclaim the gospel with integrity. Despite opposition. Doesn't matter if the opposition comes from without or even from within. Be determined, child of God, 
to continually proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with integrity even in the midst of opposition. Point number two. Proclaim the gospel gladly with self-sacrifice. Paul says in the second half here of verse 6, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Those who preach the gospel have the right to live through the gospel. In other words, let him who is taught the word, this is Galatians 6, 6, share with him who teaches in all good things. Because the very next verse says in Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he shall also reap. When Jesus sent out his apostles, and then Paul makes the argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, those who preach the gospel have a right to live by the gospel. They had the right to make that demand, Paul and Silas did, when they went to Thessalonica. And notice here it says, as apostles. Very interesting. As you study First and Second Thessalonians, this is the only time the word apostle is used. Why? Many of the other churches to whom Paul writes struggled with the authority of Christ and the authority of Paul. So often when he begins a letter, he identifies himself as an apostle. It seems that the Thessalonians were submissive to him, so he did not even need to remind them of his authority in Christ. Now as we transition to verse 7, I want you to think about the world in which we live and how hard it is, how cold it is, and particularly how the men are supposed to be macho. I think back of the icons of Hollywood as I was growing up. Men that were indifferent, that were tough. And now in this day and age, we have women who are supposed to be tough and hard and mean. Jesus was meek and lowly. Moses, the greatest man on planet earth in his day, according to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, was meek. Doesn't mean they were weak. Power under control. Jesus went to the cross. Could have called legions of angels. He was all powerful. But submitted to his father's will. Verse 7, Paul says, we were gentle among you. One of the fruit of the Spirit is meekness. Gentle means gentle, mild, easy, compliant. The term is used in 2 Timothy 2.24 of God's servants. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Paul says, we were gentle among you. Notice the terminology Paul uses. Concerning himself and Silas. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Does that sound macho to you? Does that sound arrogant to you? Nursing mother. 
The term here means a nurse. Someone who is caring for the little ones. Like a nursing mother who cherishes to give warmth to care for who? Her own children. Verse 8. So affectionately longing for you. It's the heart of a shepherd. It's the heart of Christ. Affectionately longing to present tense means continually. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. We were well pleased. The imperfect tense shows continuous action in past time. They continued to be this way, and it says to impart. Not just the desire, this is what they gave, the gospel of God, which was always a priority to Paul, but also our own lives, our own souls. Ministry that costs nothing is worth nothing. And if shepherds are not sacrificing for the sheep, then it's not genuine ministry. And can you think about the individual individuals that led you to Christ? Have those individuals made sacrifices for you? Paul says, we gave you our own lives, our very souls. In other words, they sacrificed in order to take care of these individuals. They took what could have been their own and shared that with others. Why? Because you had become dear to us. Dear, beloved, remember the words of the Father to the Son? In Matthew 3, in verse 17, at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son. Same term used here, translated dear. Verse 9, Paul says, let me show you how I sacrificed for you. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. Only Paul uses these two terms together. Labor and toil. Interesting, each has the article, the word the before it. So it shows some individual emphasis as well. Think about this. Worked night and day. He took on a secular occupation in order to make money so that he could supply his own need and not be a burden, have the responsibility of those individuals footing his bills. See, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Oh, child of God, I pray that's been your experience, that someone has sincerely loved you, brought to you the most important message ever, the good news of Jesus Christ. His coming, the perfect life he led, the sacrificial death as substitute for you, and then his resurrection. And that message was brought to you and you believed it and you're born again. But those individuals in your lives that led you to Christ, 
made those sacrifices for you, that now you can do the same for others. Number one, proclaim the gospel with integrity despite opposition. Number two, proclaim the gospel gladly with self-sacrifice. And now number three, petition the saints as a godly father to kingdom living. That's verses 10 through 12. You are witnesses. Paul begins in verse 10. Three things, three adverbs. Number one, how devoutly, then justly, and then blamelessly. Let's look at each one. How devoutly Paul and Silas and then Timothy were to the congregation. It means sacred or holy. They conducted themselves with integrity. And justly, they were given to God's justice. We are told in Titus 2 that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, and here's a term, righteously and godly in the present age. So not only devoutly, justly, but then blamelessly, blamelessly. Same term occurs over in chapter 5, same book, chapter 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had charged these individuals. He had given them a solemn warning, and when you are someone's mentor... You had led someone to Christ. There are times you've got to charge them. You carry the authority of Jesus Christ and you need to let them know which way is up. It's important. But notice how Paul did this. As a father does his own children. A father comes alongside of the child, makes an appeal to the will. You need to do this. If the child doesn't listen, then the father enacts discipline whom the Lord loves he chastens so also loving fathers do the same but here's the exhortation notice in verse 12 notice the word that it speaks of purpose that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory I'll get on my knees if necessary and tell someone that you need to walk with God. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you make that presentation to God. Paul says that you should walk. This is how you conduct yourself. This is how you should live. Worthy. Of God. Actually, an adverb worthily is how it could be translated. In Ephesians 4 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling with which you were called. You have a heavenly calling. Live up to it. Understand that the king has called you to his business, kingdom business. Who calls you? Not only were you called in the past from eternity, 
The effectual call is the call to salvation. But here the word calls is in the present tense. God is still calling you. Do you hear him? He's speaking through his word. He's speaking through his servants. He is speaking through circumstances. But he's calling you. And what does he call you to? His own kingdom and glory. Kingdom and glory are connected by one article. The. These two go hand in hand. The kingdom and glory. Let me just say this child of God. The moment you believed on Jesus Christ. You enter into his kingdom. It's an invisible kingdom. Jesus had told Nicodemus. That unless one is born again, he cannot see. And then he says, enter the kingdom of God. But in the future, there will be a physical kingdom. We learn about it in Revelation 20, a thousand year period of time. We see it from the Old Testament prophets. So to believe on Christ means you have eternal life. The moment... You heard the gospel and you put your faith in Jesus like that Philippian jailer. Remember? Paul simply said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The moment you believe sincerely, you're saved, that's it, you're eternally secure. But that does not mean that you will be rewarded in the future. It does not. You'll be with God forever But it doesn't mean you'll be rewarded. That's why in 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul talks about our future rewards, he says there will be some that will be rewarded greatly to carry that with them. And others will not. They'll get into heaven. They'll get into the kingdom. But there's a huge difference between inheriting in Christ and just entrance. The scriptures bear that out. Repeatedly. The exhortation to you is not to lose your reward. That's 2 John verse 8. False teachers come. 2 John 7. Want to lead you astray. Why? Because they want you to get off track. Not to lead others to Christ. Lose your reward. That's what Satan wants for you. You got to battle the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. And the pride of life. There's the works of the flesh and then there's the fruit of the Spirit. You got to walk with God, fill your mind to have a victorious life. There needs to be a motivation here and now. And that's why Paul says he disciplines his body and brings it under submission. That when he preaches to others, he himself would not be disqualified. Disqualified, what do you mean? In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He doesn't want to lose out on his future reward. He's eternally secure. So very important. He who calls you into his kingdom and glory. To those who sacrifice and suffer for Christ here and now comes a great, a greater future glory than those who don't. Proclaim the gospel with integrity despite opposition. So very important. You're determined. You're going to bring the gospel as Paul and Silas were. 
after being beaten, trek 100 miles, boldly proclaim the gospel. Doesn't matter what hits you along the way, be determined to bring people the gospel of Christ. Number two, proclaim the gospel gladly with self-sacrifice. It's a privilege to personalize the gospel. In Romans 1.16, Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, but in Romans 2.16, he calls it my gospel. He's personalized it in the sense that he's made it his own. Do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to others. Regardless of the cost, make the sacrifice. Demonstrate to the people that you are bringing the message to, that you are willing not only to bring them the gospel of God, but your own souls. Give everything. Show people the nature of God. And then finally, petition the saints as a godly father to kingdom living. I petition you as a father, as a grandfather, as a pastor, that you would be determined even after your salvation to give everything to Christ, to present your body a living sacrifice, to daily take up your cross, take God's word, let it fill your life. Look like Paul did to the future and the reward that awaits us. Greater rulership with Christ when you look at the New Testament body of scriptures. Greater glory for those saints who suffer with Christ. It's Romans eight sixteen and 17. Don't be one who just goes through this life fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You will be ashamed one day, child of God, according to 1 John 2, 28, when you stand before Christ, enter in. Enter in. Enter into what? Enter into a life totally dedicated to Christ. And it will give you a benefit package out of this world. Join me in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We learned so much, so much from you through the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Thank you. You cultivated hearts in them of pastors. Men that love the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed it and even laid down their own souls, their own lives. Help us to imitate them and to lay up treasures in heaven. May we be rich in the kingdom to come, to share in the glory of Christ, in his rule and his reign. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 